Bible worm, Bible worm, reading the Bible with Bible worm. Welcome to Bible Worm, getting to the core of the biblical text. Dr. Amy Robertson, Director of Lifelong Learning at Congregation Or Hadash in Sandy Springs, Georgia. And I'm Dr. Robert Williamson, Professor of Religious Studies at Hendricks College and the founding pastor of Mercy Community Church in Little Rock. We're here every week to discuss the biblical text, both as biblical scholars and as people of faith, one Jewish and one Christian. This week, we read Galatians chapter 1, verses 13 through 17, and chapter 2, verses 11 through 21. It's a challenging set of texts for an interfaith podcast, and a set of texts with a troubled history in the Jewish-Christian relationship. As we read together, we wondered, what is the role of faith and of action in our relationship to God? When is the uniqueness of each person important, and when should we look past difference to similarity? Thanks for joining us. Hey, Bobby. Hey, Amy. How are you this week? I'm good. So as you know, but probably people listening to this podcast do not know, my husband is a musician. And so this year has not been a year of a lot of performance (laughs) (laughs) for him. But last night he had what I think was his first in-person gig in like a million years. Wow, yeah. But I've gotten so accustomed to him being home at night. Like we're this pile of puppies and we can't go to sleep until all of us are home. And now, yeah. and you know, he was out till 1, one thirty in the morning and I could not sleep. Like I kept waking up and- Oh, that's so sweet. Walking around the house. It was not sweet at all. <laughs> sweet and annoying. Yeah, he was sweet and annoying. That's right. I like how you so casually talk about your husband, the musician. I now I in in just casual conversation, I refer to him as the Grammy nominated Will Robertson. <laughs> I just think that's so cool. Yeah, yeah, it's so amazing. And you're just like, yeah, my husband's a musician. And I'm like, your husband is a Grammy nominated. He's not. We wasn't nominated as a musician though. He was he was nominated as a producer, or yeah, engineer yeah. or something, right? But still, yeah, producer. Yeah, that is so cool. But he's a talented guy. And he's I'm glad enormously to have him talented. Yeah, yeah, he really yeah. is. Well, this week we have moved on to the book of Galatians. How are you feeling about that? I mean, I will say that after I first read this text yesterday, I went for a long run <laughs> <laughs> to yeah. process yeah. some of how I felt about it. I mean, people ask me, Jewish friends ask me with some frequency why I read these texts with you. Oh, interesting. And my answers have been, I mean, a lot of it is my relationship with you and that I trust you and I have some curiosity about these texts. And so it seems like a relatively safe space to read them. Mm -hmm. And there are so, so many Christian folks in my life who I love. And so I want to see what their texts are. And I think text is inherently interesting and... And all of this stuff. And reading this text, I really, I had my first response was a very strong, why am I reading this? Yeah. Like, I, I don't know what my role is in response to this text. Yeah. To say, no, Paul, you're wrong. Of course, I think you're wrong. I'm not Christian. This is not my scripture. So, yeah. I, so again, like, I feel like I can have this conversation with you because we have, you know, 85 years of history. But it is it is very strange to try to figure out how to read this text in a way that has that 
offers honor and dignity to the text, which I feel like if I can't do that, then I really shouldn't read the text. But also, this text is not for me. No, I really do. I appreciate so much your reading these texts with us. And, you know, in my mind, the gift that you are offering to the Christian community is both just your insightfulness as a reader of biblical texts, but also like Christians who are reading and proclaiming and integrating texts like this into our lives need to think about the way that that plays with people who are outside of the Christian tradition. And this text has been enormously problematic for the relationship of Christians and Jews for 2,000 years. And it doesn't have to be, I think, but in order for it not to be, Christians need to be really honest with ourselves about the ways that it can be. And Mm -hmm. so I like... Your sticking with it is really valuable from that perspective, so so I'm grateful for it. Well, our texts today, which I should have mentioned earlier, are we're in Galatians chapter one, thirteen through seventeen, and then chapter two, eleven through twenty one. So I think we're ready to just dive in. Are you ready? Let's do it. Yeah. Okay. So picking up then in verse thirteen, you have heard no doubt of my earlier life in Judaism. I was violently persecuting the church of God and was trying to destroy it. I advanced in Judaism beyond many among my people of the same age, for I was far more zealous for the traditions of my ancestors. But when God, who had set me apart before I was born and called me through his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me so that I might proclaim him among the Gentiles, I did not confer with any human being, Nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were already apostles before me, but I went away at once into Arabia, and afterwards I returned to Damascus. I'm going to open with my sort of big question for you, and then, but you can, you can punt it down the road if you want to wait till we talk about (laughs) the text a little more first. Yeah, good, good. What's at stake with this? Why does he open this letter the way that he does? Yeah, I mean, this letter is introduced in a really unusual way for Paul. And, you know, part of it is that we skipped the first 12 verses of the letter. Sure did. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But Paul is concerned in this letter in a way that is very front and center about what he considers to be a false gospel that is making its way into the churches in Galatia. Mm. And that false gospel involves the practice of circumcision and with it, the kind of status of the Jewish law, Torah provisions. And one of the things that's happening is it seems like Paul has founded these churches. Paul has preached the gospel of some sort of freedom in Jesus Christ, as we'll see. And then other Jewish Christians have come from Jerusalem and sort of said, you know, you really need to also be following the Torah. You need to circumcise, keep kosher, Mm -hmm. observe Sabbath and whatever. And we know what we're talking about because we're from Jerusalem, which is where this whole thing got started. And who Mm -hmm. is Paul anyway? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so Paul, at the very beginning of this letter, is having to defend not only his theological position, but also his biography. Like, why should you listen to me? Mm -hmm. And the answer is because I was specifically chosen Mm -hmm. by God in a way that other people were not. I didn't learn my gospel from James and the others in Jerusalem. I learned my gospel direct from Jesus. I never went to Jerusalem. I I learned it myself straight from the source. And so he's got to defend his own authority Mm -hmm. in order to defend his interpretation of the gospel. Okay, so now that I have that sort of broad question sort of out there and addressed at least in some ways, 
I'm interested in going back to the beginning and just sort of piecing through this a little bit. And the yeah. first thing that really stands out to me in verse 13 is, is the use of the word Judaism. Yeah. When he talks about his life in Judaism, do you think that's interchangeable with saying it's my life in observance of the law? Or I don't know, what what do you see in that word in particular? And I'm kind of more curious what you think it means than, than what I think it means. I mean, I guess for me, the word Judaism includes observance of the law, but also includes customs and manners and sort of ways of being that are associated with a peoplehood. Like there might be, there's a culture and there's a, all these things that just sort of grow out of being part of a civilization over time. Yeah. And so I hear both Torah observant Judaism because that was part of that civilization, but also, I don't know, other trappings of, other trappings of that. I think that's really helpful. And and I think that's probably what Paul means here as well. Like, I, I think Christian readers tend to flatten that Judaism to a, like a religious belief and, and, and a fairly mm-hmm. narrow sense of even what that religious belief is, as sort of like following provisions of Torah. But yeah. I think your emphasis on the bigger picture of like peoplehood, community, I think those things are really important. This phrase I advanced in Judaism just strikes me as so funny because I spend so much time as a, a Jewish educator trying to get across the idea that like there's no competitive Judaism. You can't fall <laughs> behind in Judaism. Like, <laughs> yeah. This is a it's a lifelong endeavor. I mean, I imagine here that he's talking about like he became advanced in his learning. And so with that came authority to make decisions within the community. Is that what you're picturing? Advancing in Judaism? That's such a weird phrase. <laughs> yeah, it is kind of. And there is a like he's he's a little bit talking about zealousness here in a minute. And I think mm-hmm. that advancing has military connotations to it a little bit. Like the sort of the like, you know, there's a battlefront and he's like advanced the battlefront. So it's kind of interesting the degree to which there's a struggle, the sense of struggle for Paul. Yeah, I'm glad that you tied this just directly into this idea of being zealous that he gets into. Because I think after my long run yesterday, I think really where I came down was that this is a story of a zealous leader. Yeah. And the ways in which I struggle with these texts are the ways in which I struggle with most things that come out of anyone who identifies as a zealot. I mean, I, I think that's a fair reading of Paul. And, and and a little bit, that's his own kind of claim about it was like, you know, the reason Paul is such a remarkable figure and like part of the power of his testimony is he was a great persecutor of the church and then he became the great advocate for the church. And like, mm-hmm. it is exactly in, I was all in for one team and now I'm all in for the other. Like that's mm-hmm. part of his claim to authority. And so, I, you know, on the one hand, I think there's some things to commend about that. And clearly, Paul was very mm-hmm. persuasive. But I think you're pulling out sort of, well, there's also some things to critique about that. You know, <laughs> like we all know that the people who are all in one way and then all in the other way. And you're like, okay, but also there's new, there's like a whole nuanced middle that we could talk about that those mm-hmm. folks, including Paul, I think sometimes mm-hmm. have trouble mm-hmm. getting their heads to. Yeah, heads no, I think that's really well said. And I think that framing, I think, helps us to understand what's going to happen in chapter two. Yeah. Quite a lot. One thing that we should keep in mind about Paul as as I'm saying this is he's actually not at all interested in converting Jews to Christianity. He is, in fact, explicitly not interested in that. He, in his own telling and in the telling of Acts, as we saw last time, Paul understands himself to be a missionary to the Gentiles. Mm -hmm. And so in an interesting way, he has not flipped from sort of being a Jewish Jew to being a Christian Jew and then gone back to Jewish Jews and said, y'all should be Christian. He's gone from being a Jewish Jew to being a Christian Jew. 
And then he's gone to the Gentiles to say y'all should be Christian. And he would, at least in his own telling, would be perfectly happy to leave Judaism out of it altogether. The problem is that other Jews who have become Christians have now inserted Judaism back into a Christian conversation among the Gentiles. And Paul's got to deal with this thing. He Maybe he would rather just not deal with at all. Anyway, so yeah. That, it's no, a, it's that's a, a really situation. interesting point. Now I want to like sit and think about that for for a bit. But you're right. I mean, in a way, he's not quite in the exactly flipped situation yeah. because he's he's moved into the Gentile community where he didn't really have any, you know, life before uh before he's called. Yeah. That's very interesting. All righty. So, now we're going to get into the more challenging texts. Yes. In uh chapter 2, picking up in verse 11. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood self-condemned. For until certain people came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But after they came, he drew back and kept himself separate for fear of the circumcision faction. And the other Jews joined him in this hypocrisy so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were not acting consistently with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you compel the Gentiles to live like Jews? Okay, question number one. Cephas? Cephas is just the Aramaic form of the word Peter. And so this is the Apostle Peter. Cephas means rock in Aramaic and Petros means rock in Greek. So Cephas. Peter. Okay, can you just describe what is happening here? So what seems to be the case is that Cephas, Peter, who, at least in the book of Acts, is also portrayed as having that kind of dramatic conversion, not conversion, but he has that dramatic scene we talked about a couple weeks ago with Cornelius, where he is told, you know, Gentiles are no longer unclean, and so you could go and visit them and, like, convert them, baptize them, and whatever. Mm-hmm. That seems to be also in the background here. So Cephas has been with Paul. They ha- they've been in Antioch. They've been in the Christian church. And in that context, both Paul and Peter, Cephas, eat with Gentiles. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, their position seems to be that whatever has happened with this Jesus thing means that Jews and Gentiles— now in Christ, mm-hmm. there's no longer any kind of division between them. And so they can just be one community together. And then these folks come from James. James, by the way, is not James of James and John, the sons of Zebedee. James is James, the brother of Jesus, who is one of the leaders of the Jewish Christian church in mm-hmm. Jerusalem. Okay. And so people come from James means, I think, people come from the church in Jerusalem, the Christian church in Jerusalem, most of those folks came into Christianity from Judaism. Mm-hmm. And so they are they are trying to work out the relationship of Jewish practice and Christianity, Christian belief in one kind of way, whereas Peter and Paul have been working out in a different way because they're working with Gentiles who don't have any attachment to Jewish Torah or to Jewish culture. And then now people come from Jerusalem to Antioch and there's like now the cultural divide is like front and center. Yeah. And then it seems like now at mealtime, we've got sort of a Jewish group that a Jewish Christian group that eats together and a Gentile Christian group that eats together. Paul eats with the Gentiles. All the other Jewish Christians eat separately. Mm -hmm. And then, I mean, Paul just straight out calls him a hypocrite. (laughs) Yeah. I don't know. Do you think, do you think hypocrite is the right word for that? It might be. Can you say more about that? I'm interested. Well, I guess it landed for me almost like 
eating with the Gentiles was like a closeted behavior in some way that like you feel that you should, but you know there is a system that tells you that you shouldn't and you just haven't, you have not figured out how to navigate that. And Mm. so you are, and so you're doing different things depending who's around you. Yeah, I mean, because, you know, previous to now, the the picture that we've had is the folks in Jerusalem just kind of said, look, we're going to be missionaries to the Jews. And Paul and you guys, y'all be missionaries to the Gentiles. Mm-hmm. And like, you go your way, we'll go our way. And we'll just, you know, both of these are gospel and we'll mm-hmm. just let them be what they are. And here the two cultures have overlapped in a way. And I love that. I love your reading of that. Like nobody quite knows what to do now that these two things that they agreed were going to be separate are now together. What do we do? Yeah, right. And so one way to handle that is to behave differently in different contexts. Yeah. Or you could go, you know, for <laughs> for for the Paul side or the Jerusalem church yeah. side, which are like, no, one or the other has to carry the day yeah. for everybody. Okay, so moving along, we are in verse 15. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is justified not by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. And we have come to believe in Christ Jesus so that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by doing the works of the law, because no one will be justified by the works of the law. So what I would take as the central idea of these couple of verses is that a person is not justified by the law. Yeah. Can you use different words to say that? Like, what does it mean to you to be justified or not justified by the law? You know, I think I think at the end of the day, what Paul is trying to talk about is that human beings are, in one way or another, tend to be alienated from God. We are not in right relationship with God. Mm-hmm. The word justified there has a legal connotation to it, which I think is one way of thinking about it, but not necessarily the only way of thinking about it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I myself think it's more useful to talk about right relationship. And so like um, a person isn't restored to right relationship by the works of the law. And so that, then you have more the idea of the covenanted nature of God and people, God and Israel, God and whatever this Christian movement now is going to be. Um, and that relationship tends to get askew. And how do we get the relationship back the way it should be? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Does that answer your question? Yeah, I think so. And I, I like that articulation of it, that it's more about, you know, getting into right relationship. And I I mean, I just keep coming back to this idea of the the extremes in this text and that yeah. you have to choose from one side of the continuum or, or the other, which seems so not true to my experience in the world. But I can get behind the idea that there's not some list of laws or practices that will put you into right relationship with yeah. God on their own. Yeah. But I can't get behind the idea that just faith with no action behind it can. Yeah. Like we are human beings. We have bodies and we move through the world in our bodies and that matters. And so the things that I choose to do with my body, I think can direct my thoughts and my spiritual life. I don't think it all comes top down like you decide something and then you do it. Sometimes I think you commit to doing something and that itself does work on you over time. The way that I tend to think about it is that, I don't know, see if you would agree with with me about this, that right relationship with God comes 
at least initially, from God's action toward the human community to be in right relationship. And then the acts of the law are sort of a response to that initial offer of right relationship that sort of govern the way that relationship's going to go. But it doesn't sort of create the right relationship. It is a response to the right relationship. Is that a totally Christian way of getting at that? I think that makes some sense. I mean, the idea, at least in the Torah, of God's relationship to Israel is that God acts in history in relation to Israel. And so to ask Israel to also act in relationship to God seems to me to make sense. Like it is it is like the visible sign of that covenant. And again, as I said, I think it also it helps us mm-hmm. to do it. So one of the one way of reading Paul is he, he's actually trying to make a right here, he's gonna do something different, I think, in a minute, but he's trying to make a distinction, I think, within an understanding of Judaism itself, that the Torah never created right relationship and can never create re- right relationship between Israel and God. It didn't generate that. God generated that, and Torah was a response to it. And in doing that, he's going to quote down here at the end of at the end of verse 16, no one will be made righteous by the works will be made righteous by the works of the law. He's actually quoting Psalm 142 right there. He adds the works of the law. <laughs> but like no one is righteous before God. Like there is nothing you can do. Mm-hmm. Torah observance doesn't make you righteous before God. God chooses to be in that relationship. And then Torah observance like governs the way that you mm-hmm. move in the world. I, mm-hmm. I like the way, you, the way you said that. And so Paul, I think, is just trying to say, like, look, let's understand what Torah does and doesn't do. It might govern the way we move in the world, but it doesn't create right relationship between us and God. That, that relationship is there because God extends it or God doesn't extend it. And that's just the way it is. That's helpful to me to hear um, that quote from the Psalms that just takes out this whole thing about the works of the law altogether. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, and just to say, like, no one is righteous before the Lord. And it is by the grace of God that any of us continue to have yeah. relationship or life or anything else, which I imagine would be true also regarding faith in Jesus. Yeah, which leads us to this really interesting issue of, so your translation in the NRSV was through faith in Christ. Yeah. The CEB, which I'm reading, through the faithfulness of Christ, Jesus oh, Christ. That is different. It is very different. And there's a huge argument about this. The Greek, diapisteos Jesu Christu, which is arguably translatable either way. The more plain sense reading of it in my mind is what the CEB has said through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. The NRSV's through faith in Jesus suggests that if you have faith in Jesus, then you are saved. Mm -hmm. The critique of that is that it just replicates what Paul was just critiquing. It just replaces Jesus with Torah with Jesus. Is that what you were saying? That's what I was saying. Yeah. Yeah. And so I, I think that's the right critique of that is now all you've done is you just created a different work of the law, mm-hmm. which is you need to believe mm-hmm. in Jesus to replace all these ones you just tried to displace. When mm-hmm. the starting point for Paul was right relationship is because God extends right relationship. Mm-hmm. If you read it the other way through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ, now what you have is a different way of saying that first thing. Like now the way that God moves toward humankind is specifically mm-hmm. through Jesus who was faithful to the task of giving up his life in whatever way, which is a whole other conversation, but in whatever way that restores right relationship with God. Right. And I think Paul's going to come out as something like human beings are under a curse. And by dying on a cross and specifically, Jesus takes that curse on himself. And so human beings are freed of the curse. But we yeah. didn't have anything to do with that. 
Jesus right. did that in the same way that God moved toward Abraham, Jesus moved toward us. In mm-hmm. both cases, God's the one who is making the right relationship. There's different mm-hmm. ways we think about that, but the Torah is not the starting point for that. Ritual observance mm-hmm. is not the starting point for that, nor is belief in Jesus the starting point for that. It is God's action towards Abraham on the one hand, God's action through Jesus on the other. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. And I want to ask about this statement in verse 16. We have come to believe in Christ Jesus so that we might be justified by faith in Christ. Yeah. I'm curious about the so that. Yeah. That issue there is what does believed mean? The word there again is pisteo, to have faith, which I think believed is a weak rendering of that because it implies some sort of cognitive activity that you either assent to or do not assent to. I think the better translation would be we trusted in Jesus. Mm -hmm. And so what one has to do in order to receive this kind of restoration of right relationship that Jesus has enacted is trust that Jesus has done that. The parallel would be Abraham trusted that when God made promises, God was going to keep them. When we respond to Jesus, we trust that what Jesus has done actually does what Jesus said it was going to do. Okay, we just had this last little couple verses. There's nothing much in this last section. It's <laughs> like half the time. I'm just kidding. This last section, I feel like every verse of it, we could spend an hour on. So I'm picking up in verse 17. But if in our effort to be justified in Christ, we ourselves have been found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. But if I build up again the very things that I once tore down, then I demonstrate that I am a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live, but it is Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God for if justification comes through the law, then Christ died for nothing. Yeah. Where do you want to start with this, Bobby? Here's my shorthand version of what I think Paul is saying here. Yeah. Paul has just established that the only thing that creates right relationship with God is the faithfulness of Jesus. And so he has displaced the idea that Torah observance is what creates right relationship. And now what he's saying is, look, if you go back to Torah observance, what you're saying is you don't actually trust that the death and resurrection of Jesus creates right relationship. You're sort of hedging your bets. Yeah. And if you actually think that Torah could restore right relationship, like Jesus didn't even need to do what Jesus did because everybody could just become Jewish. So I think what he's saying is now that you, Jewish Christian, have realized that right relationship comes through Jesus, you need to live fully in that life, which I think means don't follow the ritual law. But at the very least, I think means don't allow ritual law to separate you mm-hmm. from Gentile Christians who also believe in trust in the same promise you trust in through Jesus Christ. Like that's got to be the thing that unites us because this other practice is going to separate us. Mm-hmm. I think that's what he's after. I know there was a lot of nuance probably in there that I missed, but. No, I think I'm sort of, I'm like, I'm quiet because I'm like, that makes, that sort of makes sense. Like I can. <laughs> Mm-hmm. I can I can see I can see where where Paul is coming from with that. This idea that when Paul keeps talking about 
sort of I don't know, metaphorically, I don't know, his own death yeah. through the law. I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ and is no longer I who live. Yeah. Is that just like a, a very sort of dramatic self-effacing statement? Like, I, I don't I don't. It's like it, it, it sort of bounces off my brain in some ways. Yeah, nobody's quite sure, at least nobody that I know is quite sure what through the law I died to the law means. Yeah. It seems to be that what the law, what following the Torah has done for him is to show him that like the Torah can't restore right relationship. And so then he has the law no longer means anything to him. It's no longer relevant mm-hmm. to him. Right. So he has like ceased to exist within that system. Yeah. And so, so why has... would you go back to it? This thing that you have died to going back mm-hmm. to it can't can't do anything for you. Mm-hmm. This thing about being crucified with Christ and Christ being alive in him, I think is Paul's way of talking about baptism, which isn't clear at all here, but it becomes clear in other places that in the act of baptism, he has died. He has participated in Christ's crucifixion, and therefore this, his self has died and Christ lives. This is an idea that Paul has a lot, mm-hmm. um, that believers in Christ no longer exist as themselves, but they mm-hmm. exist as sort of manifestations of Jesus in the world. I think it is self-effacing. I think it is mm-hmm. also about like when I encounter someone else who is different from me, but who is also Christian, I should not encounter them as different from me. Primarily, I should encounter them as a like we are both alive in Christ. And so mm-hmm. then the cultural differences are interesting, right? And maybe they make us a richer community, but they mm-hmm. don't like, they should not serve as moments of distinction. Like you are this kind of person, I'm that kind of person. So we don't have anything to do with each other. No, no, we're we're both in Christ. And so we are united and our differences sh- shouldn't separate us. Yeah. The thing that gets so complicated here is Paul actually doesn't care <laughs> I think, about the way that Jewish Jews practice their Judaism. He cares about the way Jewish Christians practice their Christianity. Yeah. But it creates this whole, there's this whole kind of negative reading of Judaism that one can and often people have taken out of this text, which really I don't think needs to be there. Paul has in an interesting way solved the problem he set out to solve, which is how should Christians who come into the Christian faith from different backgrounds, in this case, Jewish and Gentile, how should we relate to each other? Well, we should relate to each other through trust in Jesus. And so the cultural markers should not serve as barriers, whether those are Jewish cultural markers or other cultural markers. But he's sort of left this problem, which I don't think he meant to deal with at all, about but what does that mean for Jews who are still Jewish? I mean... I don't know. I would imagine that he doesn't say anything about Jews who are still Jews because not for not because I mean, if he doesn't think that the law has power to bring you into right relationship with God, that is pretty damning. But that's just not that's not the issue he's taking up. But what he's also pointing out, though, as we were just talking about in in Psalm 142, is that the Torah, or at least the scriptures of Judaism, also don't think law brings you into right relationship. That's true. He makes an interesting move in the letter to Romans, which is a whole other conversation. But in the letter to Romans, at least, what he seems to say is in Romans 9 to 11, he says, look, God made a move toward the Jews, and God is faithful to God's covenant. And so God's going to fulfill that covenant. Torah is not going to earn anybody their way into heaven, but God is faithful to the covenants that God makes. No, that that makes sense, I think. But he doesn't do that in Galatians. And the reason I think he doesn't do it is because that's not what he's talking about here. Yeah. But Christians have tended to read Paul then as saying like, oh, the Torah has no value and therefore so much for the Jews. And that's a 
terrible theology. Yeah. And I think not actually Paul's theology. Torah can't get you there, but neither can belief in Jesus. Right. Nothing can get you there. That's right. the whole point. That God you... has to make that move. Mm-hmm. Yep. God makes it toward mm-hmm. the Jews with Abraham. God makes it toward Gentiles and Jesus. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Amy, this is a complicated, <laughs> this is a complicated text. It complicated is a complicated text. I know. I can't believe we're, we're coming already to, <laughs> to the end of our conversation. I feel like we're just starting. We're just starting. Yeah. So what would you pull out today for folks who are reading this text in our modern world? I mean, to me, the crux of this text is the issue about right relationship with God for Christians comes through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. And that faithfulness of Jesus Christ coming to live among humanity, giving himself up on behalf of humanity, accepting the curse, as Paul would have it, that belong to humanity in order to restore right relationship with God is an act of pure grace. God did that because that's what God does. God did that for Abraham because that's what God does. Like that's who God is. And this action in Jesus Christ is an act, an act of grace that precedes anything that human beings do. We can't earn that grace. It just comes to us. And the response to that is to trust that that is true and to allow that trust to be the thing that that governs our lives. To me, this is such a hard thing for, especially for American Christians, I think, to get our heads around, that there is not an earning of our salvation that is possible, whether that earning is through works of the law or doing good deeds or praying the sinner's prayer or saying the right formulation of, I believe in Jesus as my personal Lord and Savior. We want to earn our way. And in my mind, this passage is saying it comes as gift There's nothing you can do, no matter how great you are. And Paul thinks he's pretty great. No matter how (laughs) great you are, there's nothing you can do to earn it. That comes to you as a gift. And so so you you live in gratitude and trust that that gift has been given to you. And what that does then is it takes away all the things by which we brag about who we are and how great we are and how faithful we are and how whatever we are. And it also takes away all the things by which we distinguish other people as being less than us and saying, well, you're that way and you don't do what I do. It erases those distinctions. And in a way that says, now when we encounter one another, we encounter other people for whom God's gracious gift has also come as a free gift. And so we should relate to each other as brothers and sisters and siblings, no matter who we are, because The only reason we have any kind of value in that big picture is because God has given it to us. I think, I guess, as many problems as that that creates in this conversation, I think that is a really beautiful idea that there is the, there's nothing we can do. And so the, the pressure is not on us. Like we live lives of gratitude and we live lives recognizing that other people also are in exactly the same position that we are and we are drawn to each other as like grateful recipients of a gift we did not earn or deserve if we could really embrace that it would it would change the whole way that we relate to each other that's such a powerful reading of this and you know i feel like i interacted with this text so much from the perspective of like paul's being so black and white and so like pushing things to one end of the continuum or another but the way that you are reading it sort of with some other text from romans sort of in mind also is really not that there's a lot more spaciousness in your reading i think for for the diversity of people and actually for paul's 
demand that there be space for diversity of people, which I would not have taken from the face of this text. So I really appreciate your pulling that out and giving me some gray area to exist in. I really like the gray area. What do you see when you look at this text? When I was doing my master's program, one of my professors, John Levinson, um, he's an orthodox guy and fantastic scholar and does a, a good bit of sort of Jewish Christian dialogue work. And he would tell us that the key to interfaith dialogue was to know what your truth claims are when you go in Mm -hmm. and not to like, you don't have to shy away from them. You shouldn't think you're trying to convince someone else of them. You shouldn't think someone else is going to convince you of them. Mm -hmm. You're just saying what they are. Yeah. And that that can take some of the charge off of disagreement there should be disagreement. <laughs> That's why they're, you know, it's not interfaith. Yeah. <laughs> and so one of the things that I really appreciate about this text is that it pressed me to identify some of my truth claims, which are not, which are not the opposite of Paul's in the sense that I wouldn't say, no, it is the works of the law that will justify our existence. And so I, I feel like in some ways my strong reaction to this text was that I felt like I had to take up that stance to argue with him. But that's not actually what I think. What I think is we have bodies and we need to remember that. Mm -hmm. And we interact with the world through our bodies. And so having ways to integrate that fact into our life of faith is not random and arbitrary. It is a real guidepost in my experience of faith in the world. I believe that. And I believe, as I think you are persuading me that maybe Paul believes, that there is not just one path. And I can't believe that you've persuaded me that Paul (laughs) thinks that because I really did not think that he thought that when I started reading this. But yeah. And so it's helpful for me in reading a text like this just to to go back to what what do I actually think is true? And and Paul can think whatever he thinks is true. And I don't have to argue every point of it with him. But but I, I appreciate that about this text. It pressed me to uh, examine what I really think is true. On that going as far as we can thing, I think that's right. And then I think like once we sort of once we sort of say we can't go any further together, then we also have a responsibility to figure out ways to keep our tradition when we separate from enacting violence against other traditions. Mm-hmm. And this text has caused my tradition to enact violence against Jews for a long time. And so I think it's incumbent on Christian interpreters of this text, even though I think at some point we have to say, yeah, that this pulls apart. We have to then say, but how do we pull apart in a way that doesn't create violence mm-hmm. in the world for Jews or for anyone else? Mm-hmm. And we have not always been, or we have rarely been very good at that. So next week, we will be reading Galatians chapter 3, verses 1 through 9, and 23 through 29. All right. I'm looking forward to it. (laughs) We'll see what's coming. All right. Thanks, Bobby. It was good to talk with you. You too. Bye. Bye. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Bible Worm. If you'd like to hear the rest of our conversation about this text, join our Patreon at the Extended Worm level or higher to get access to extended episodes. You'll also find other goodies like early access, video lectures, weekly liturgies, and more starting at just $4 per month. Visit patreon.com slash Bible Worm podcast for details. 
Bible Worm is produced by Bobby Williamson and edited by Joel and Laura Becker. Our theme song is sung by Colin Bagby. We're grateful to all our supporters for helping us to keep the podcast going. A special thank you to our executive producer, Fox Valley Presbyterian Church in Geneva, Illinois, and to our newest sponsors, Kayla Simmons-Wood, Patrick Antill, and Sean Williams. Join us again next week when we will read Galatians chapter 3, verses 1 through 9. Until then, keep on digging.